I'm Speech Thomas from the hip-hop crew Arrested Development. On the new VPM podcast, Track Change, I take you behind the walls of Richmond City Jail, where I help four men record an album and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Subscribe to Track Change in your podcast app. From Story Mechanics and VPM. This season of Admissible contains content related to sexual violence that may be disturbing. Please take care. Listener discretion is advised. It's July 1988. This Arlington, Virginia courtroom is packed. It's a high-profile capital murder trial. And the media is here for it. Timothy Spencer denies he is Richmond's serial killer, denies he tied, raped, and strangled two Southside women in their own home. But in Arlington... Less than a year earlier, there had been a string of gruesome murders across the state. The attacks had strikingly similar details, an M.O. that earned this serial killer a nickname from the press. was the first Richmond woman to fall victim to the man described as the Southside Strangler. After months of investigation, police had finally zeroed in on a suspect, Timothy Spencer. But there was nothing directly linking him to the crimes, except for a new kind of forensic a new evidence. technological breakthrough called DNA fingerprinting. The state's entire case hinged on DNA. Today, many of us think of DNA as the most reliable kind of evidence. But back in 1988... This was a gamble. Genetic fingerprinting is being used to try and prove the case against an accused serial killer, Timothy Spencer. It may be the first time it's used in the nation. With all eyes on that Virginia courtroom, the state makes its state case. Prosecutor Helen Fahey told a jury Spencer left little evidence behind, but he left a part of himself. It took the jury about five hours to return a guilty verdict using DNA evidence. The state's gamble pays off. The jury is convinced by the DNA evidence. This conviction sparks a revolution for the work done in crime laboratories. DNA analysis would quickly become the gold standard, replacing older, less precise forensic methods. Our story is not about the Southside Strangler. It's about one forensic analyst who worked on the case. She's from the earlier era of forensics, the pre-DNA era that this trial brought to a swift conclusion. And she's a mystery that I've been unraveling. Her story illuminates something that's been hiding in plain sight all along. I'm Tessa Kramer. I'm a reporter and a producer. And as I started investigating the work of this forensic analyst, there's a phrase that came up over and over again. This is really Pandora's box. All you're doing is you're then opening up a Pandora's box. It's Pandora's box. You know, it's scary. This is probably opening Pandora's box. Now we're just going to open Pandora's box and see what flies out. I tracked down that box, because in my case, this is a literal cardboard box spilling over with documents. Look at all this. Holy shit. This is a lot. This is a lot. 
I've been carrying it around with me for about four years now, poring over the documents, trying to figure out what it all means. What are the implications of releasing its contents? Because that's what we're going to do in this podcast. The whole point of Pandora's box, like the original Greek myth, is that you're not supposed to open the box. Because doing so will release unforeseen troubles into the world. But as I'm looking at this box, I can't help but wonder, why would someone want the box to stay shut? What is it that they don't want us to see? This is Admissible, a podcast about evidence. It's like having a ticking time bomb sitting under your desk. If anybody finds out what happened, boom, 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 here it comes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my name is Marvin Anderson. Um, in the summer of 1982, Marvin Anderson is 18 years old, living in Hanover County, Virginia. He's just finished his junior year of high school. He's working a shift at King's Dominion Amusement Park the day two police officers show up. A supervisor came down to my ride and said they needed to see me in the office. Next thing I know, the officers came in. One of the officers begins asking questions. What do you know about the rape that occurred? And I was like, man, I don't know anything, but I heard guys talking about it. But I don't know what happened. And then he kind of got a little deeper tone in his voice when he asked the next question. Where were you at in such and such time? And I kind of looked at him like, you know, what's going on? What, what is going on? What was going on was that a young white woman had been attacked by a stranger and raped in the woods behind her apartment a few days earlier. The attack was brutal, and I won't go into the details, but one detail is important. It's the detail that the police fixated on. The attacker reportedly told the victim that she reminded him of his, quote, white girlfriend. At the time, Marvin, who is black, was dating a white woman. Back then, Hanover was a type of town, and I still feel it still is, but you know, interracial couples, it didn't mix well. How many other interracial couples would you say you knew at that time? Um, none. If there were, it wasn't known. So when the crime took place, I was the first person they looked at. The case goes to trial. After just one day, the jury, all white, finds Marvin guilty and recommends a sentence of 210 years in prison. I turned around to look at my mom and my family, and they were sitting right behind me this close, and I couldn't see them. Everything just went dark, and I could feel them putting the handcuffs and the shackles on me, and I couldn't see anyone. It's like a nightmare. It was like a nightmare. I mean, I was hysterical, you know. My son just got 20, 10 years for a crime he didn't do. That's Marvin's mother, Joan Anderson. Marvin didn't do it. I'm telling you that up front because I'm not here to solve this case. This isn't a whodunit. 
Marvin's case is the first domino in our story, setting off a chain of events with implications for thousands of cases. A chain of events that would eventually lead me to my own Pandora's box. And it all starts with Joan Anderson. I went from about 147 pounds down to about 118 pounds in less than a month. I was just like a brown ghost. And then one day I said, stop crying and go fight. And that's what I did. Start fighting. At first, Joan has a singular focus. Pop Lincoln, alias John Otis Lincoln. John Otis Lincoln had a record of similar assaults, and there were eyewitnesses, people who knew him, who saw him steal a bicycle later found at the crime scene. I found the detective's original suspect list. Marvin is number six, and number one... John Otis Lincoln. Yeah, they knew this. They knew all of this. And then the Commonwealth attorney, when we went to court on another time, he said, well, we knew who committed the crime, but it was left up to your attorney to prove it. And my mouth went like. Joan says her jaw practically hit the ground. But the moment that Marvin was convicted, he was legally guilty unless someone could prove otherwise. So Joan's like, all right. If they need proof, I'm going to get it. What about fingerprints on that bicycle found at the crime scene? If she could get Lincoln's fingerprint and match it to the bike, that might be enough to clear Marvin. So she comes up with a plan. Coke had a new product, and I went there where I knew Lincoln was. Joan says she marched right up to Lincoln's door. That's the actual perpetrator's door pretending to be a saleswoman for Coca-Cola. And I was just asking him, um, had they tried the new Coke product? No, you know. But he wouldn't take it. He, he didn't take no soda. It didn't work. She didn't get Lincoln's fingerprint. But the tenacity of this just blows me away. Joan keeps trying everything she can think of, but she's striking out. In 1987, John Otis Lincoln even confessed to one of Marvin's attorneys, Saad El Amin. There was a lot of hanky-panky with the case, and being very familiar with Hanover County and the um, disparate treatment of African-American defendants in criminal cases, I smelled a rat. Saad El Amin was a seasoned defense attorney with more than 10 years of experience in Virginia's criminal legal system. He sees the historical roots of the state throwing the book at a young black defendant with no criminal record. Virginia tried to reduce its lynching, but they substituted the court for the community. And the whole idea was, let's create this deterrent, which costs you your life, of any black man having any familiarity with a white woman. This is in the DNA of the so-called criminal justice system. And when you call it a criminal justice system, that's an oxymoron. John Otis Lincoln later said this is why he confessed, because he was infuriated by the blatant racism on display in Marvin's case. He said, I'm the one, and, and Marvin is innocent. They bring Lincoln to court, Joan, Marvin, his lawyers are all in the room. Lincoln confesses with details that only the perpetrator could know, but the judge doesn't buy it. This 
this is an abomination. The evidence was right there. You know, my heart just dropped. How, how do you allow something like that to happen in your courthouse? And when you know it's a lie. At this point, they're pretty much out of options. But then the national media starts to report on a new advance in forensic science. An extraordinary new type of scientific evidence. Controversial technique known as DNA fingerprinting. Kind of evidence not available to Sherlock Holmes and other legendary sleuths of the past. The use of DNA fingerprinting has exploded. Police around the country are hungry to have it. It is going to revolutionize the criminal justice system. In the wake of that pivotal Southside Strangler conviction, DNA changes everything. A new era of high-tech crime fighting has apparently arrived. It is called DNA testing or genetic fingerprinting. I imagine people like Joan Anderson sitting at home watching news coverage of the Southside Strangler conviction, like this 1988 Charlie Rose interview with the head of Virginia's lab, Dr. Paul Ferrara, a name that will come up a lot in our story. Tell me about the Virginia, your, your, why, what, what are the ramifications of this? No, hold on, let me rephrase that. What are we talking about, DNA testing? I love this interview. It captures so much. Charlie Rose sounds completely baffled by DNA, and Dr. Paul Ferrara, I mean, talk about big scientist energy. Hitherto, most of the evidence analyzed in forensic laboratories, crime laboratories, with the exception of fingerprints, they didn't really point to individuals. For people like Joan and Marvin, DNA has a flip side. If DNA could point to an individual, maybe it could clear an individual too. Joan hears about some lawyers in New York who are starting to pursue DNA-based exonerations, the Innocence Project. They agree to take on Marvin's case but there's one problem. They had no evidence. The police had long since destroyed the rape kit and all the physical evidence in Marvin's case per standard protocol. Joan being Joan, she wants to check for herself. She says that she searched high and low, calling anyone who might have a shred of evidence. The court where Marvin was tried. Hanover County had nothing. The police department. Found nothing. She even writes to the governor's office. So it didn't have anything. Well, did you pull his file? Yeah, it didn't have anything. It just didn't have anything. It all ended up everybody's hands was tied. Why can't somebody untie these hands? We investigated, looked for the evidence, and we couldn't find it. And uh, I was ready to close the case. This is Peter Neufeld, co-founder of The Innocence Project, giving a talk a few years ago. He says that the law students helping out on Marvin's case convinced him not to give up. The students kept saying to me, no, 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 you can't close this case. We've met Mr. Anderson in prison. We've met, more importantly, Mr. Anderson's mother. We should all have mothers like Marvin Anderson, okay? She's one of the most extraordinary people I've met doing this work over the last 30 years. And, and they said, you just can't do it. In 2001, Newfeld agrees to make a final plea to that guy with big scientist energy, Dr. Paul Ferrara. I talked to the head of the state crime laboratory and said, well, you know, maybe if you went back and look at the analyst notebooks from 1982, there'll be some indication that she didn't send it back to the county, that it went someplace else. 
So the next day, all of a sudden, I get a call from the head of the laboratory. He had gone to the archives. I think I asked him, uh, are you sitting down? Because I got some news for you. You won't believe this. She violated the rules, and she scotch-taped the evidence from the rape kit in her notebook. Holy cow, we still got some of this evidence. Buried in Marvin's case file, Dr. Ferrara finds a row of clippings taped to the bottom of a worksheet. Tiny bits of clothing and cotton swabs left over from the original forensic scientist's serology testing way back in the 80s. Just scotch taped to a piece of paper. A piece of paper that was slipped into a file folder and shipped off to the state records center. All those years that Joan had been searching for proof, all the people who told her there was nothing left, all that time, evidence was there, gathering dust in a file folder. I guess it just took a phone call from the right person. By this time, Marvin's out on parole. He had served 15 years before being released. He's getting by as best he can as a felon and a registered sex offender. He has to wear an ankle monitor and have regular check-ins with his parole officer. But he'd found work as a long-haul trucker. That's what he's doing when Peter Newfeld calls to tell him they found his evidence. It was during rush hour traffic. I was driving an 18-wheeler tractor trailer. And... I just pulled over to the side, got out the truck, and they started walking down 95, and I just started dancing. I mean, people were blowing a horn at me like I was crazy. But I started dancing on the side of 95, saying, yes, I can prove my innocence that I'm a bit free man. It would take several months and a legal battle to get the state to actually test the clippings. But finally, they get the DNA results. And not only did it prove I wasn't a perpetrator, but it also proved who the real perpetrator was, which was John Otis Lincoln. Marvin Anderson stood with family and friends outside the Capitol building just before he received his pardon from Governor Mark Warner. Inside the governor's office, applause could be heard. Once outside again, he could finally call himself a free man. My grandmother used to always tell me when I was incarcerated that you're there for a reason. You know, God has a reason for everything. I, I, I couldn't see that. I couldn't visualize that. What Marvin couldn't possibly imagine was the astounding series of events that would follow his exoneration, all leading back to that forensic scientist who had saved little bits of evidence in his case file a woman named Mary Jane Burton. At that point, I didn't realize how widespread Mary Jane Burton's practice was, but now as it turns out, we find out that there are thousands of cases. Thousands? Thousands. That's coming up after the break. In 2001, the Virginia State Crime Lab discovered that one of its former analysts, Mary Jane Burton, had saved clippings of evidence in Marvin Anderson's case file. Burton led the crime lab's serology department for almost 15 years, starting in the 1970s. She worked thousands of cases. And as the lab soon discovered, and the media began to report, 
she had a habit of saving bits of biological evidence. Discovered that now deceased lab technician Mary Jane Burton, known as the office pack rat, had scrupulously saved thousands of shreds of evidence from pre-DNA days just in case they might... Tests were made possible by the careful work of a lab technician named Mary Jane Burton. The state of Virginia did the only thing it could do and decided to review every one of Mary Jane Burton's cases. Virginia is using DNA for a sweeping post-conviction review of hundreds of criminals. DNA testing from the Burton files cleared two more Five DNA exonerations from the Mary Jane Burton files. The eighth man to be exonerated by... Eleven convicted people were exonerated after Warner as... Over the course of the next 18 years, a total of 13 men, including Marvin, would be cleared through DNA testing on evidence found in the lab's old case files. A state finding a trove of evidence from the pre-DNA era and spending millions of dollars on DNA testing of that evidence. It was unprecedented, and it's all thanks to Mary Jane Burton. I think she knew. I think she knew that DNA was going to be admissible. In the press, Burton was described as a saving grace, an angel, a hero, a savior. An op-ed in the New York Times said... To Burton, a case is already a fresh term of art in Richmond, one that deserves to spread through the criminal justice system. I stumbled across the story of Mary Jane Burton about four years ago when I was looking into backlogs of untested rape kits for another story. I was instantly drawn in by Mary Jane Burton, and honestly, by how little was actually known about her. Burton died in 1999, two years before Dr. Ferrara discovered her clippings. There's pretty much one photo of her floating around on the internet. She's got short gray hair. She's wearing a red sweater. It doesn't really reveal that much about her. And I wanted to know who this woman was. Over and over, I hear the same sort of thing. I always look at Miss Burton as a person that saw the future when no one else did. She always saved swatches foreseeing that there would be advanced technology in the future that might be able to do more. She just believed that someday technology was going to advance to the point that if there was a miscarriage of justice, it would be able to be rectified. 13 people were exonerated. That's a big number. That's a big, as Joe Biden would say, a big f***ing deal, okay? Mary Jane Burton, sort of the angel of the Virginia Innocence Movement. She's sort of viewed as the patron saint of justice and innocence. She's a saint. Up to this point in my reporting, this, everything you just heard, I thought this was the whole story. The story of a miraculous discovery. 13 exonerations, and one mysterious but brilliant scientist. But as we are only in episode one, things were about to take a turn. Hi, is this Candace? It is Candace. Candace Rondeau started as a reporter for the Washington Post right as the lab is beginning to review these old case files. You know, it was kind of early days for DNA analysis. And I thought it was kind of an undercovered phenomenon that people weren't really looking at. Candace is fascinated by this project and the fact that it's taking place in Virginia specifically. You know, Virginia is one of these places where you have an awfully high rate of conviction for people of color, and in particular, 
African Americans, which always raises all kinds of questions about disparities in the analysis of evidence. Amongst defense attorneys, there were a lot of questions around the quality of work at the Virginia lab and whether or not there were even systemic flaws that could be tied to one or two or three or four analysts. Candace decides to look into this, starting with a trip to the lab. I spent the day down there at the laboratory. They showed me what they were attempting to do with the review of Mary Jane Burton's files. I mean, you spend a whole day in a place. People kind of do let down their barriers. And I think there were a couple of concerns that I recall about Mary Jane Burton. And this is totally pulling from my memory. There was an internal whistleblower, another lab worker who had complained about her work. And before I can ask the obvious next question... I do not remember that person's name at all. I've been reporting on Mary Jane Burton for months, and this is the first time I've heard anything about a whistleblower. There's not even a mention of it in Candace's coverage. Maybe she couldn't verify the story? Maybe it's nothing, but I want to look into it. So my reporting partner Sophie Behrman and I dig through old articles and call everyone we can think of... No luck. Just as we start to think that this whistleblower may have been a rumor, we find one article referencing a lawsuit. A lawsuit filed against Mary Jane Burton and the lab's directors back in the 70s. It was filed by a serology trainee. In trying to reach her, we get her sister on the phone first. We believe that your sister um, knew the woman who was saving yeah, Mary Jane. I'm sure she remembers anything you want to know. I'm not sure how much she'll be willing to tell you, but I would hope personally that she would tell you everything she knows. What What do you know about all of this, like from your perspective? I know that she lost her career over it. Really? Because she wasn't okay with things not being done correctly. They pretty much blackballed her from her career. They did all kinds of awful things to her. So if I sound angry, even after all these years, it still makes me angry. As we're hanging up, Sophie brings up one last thing. A lot of the coverage has called Mary Jane Burton an angel. And and so as we're starting to Mary, talk to people... Mary Jane Burton was a lying piece of shit. How's that for you? She was a nasty, evil woman. There's so much more to come on Admissible, Season 1, Shreds of Evidence. Our second episode is out now. Admissible is produced and hosted by Tessa Kramer. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. Original reporting by Tessa Kramer and Sophie Behrman with additional reporting by Ben Pavior and Whitney Evans. Our editor is Danielle Elliott, with additional editing by Ellen Horn. Producer, Dana Bialik. Producer, Gilda DeCarli. Archival research and production support from Kristen Vermilia and Kim Naderfane-Petersa. Fact-checking by Chloe Wynn and Leslie Nyer. Production legal by Craig Merritt and Ennis Molanski. Special thanks to Steve Humble, Paige Williams, 
Nick Vanderkolk, Emile DeWeaver, Chioki Ianson. Gavin Wright is VPM's managing producer for podcast. Meg Lindholm is the director of podcast production. Sound design and mix by Charles Michelet. Music by Del Toro Sound and Story Mechanics. With additional music by APM. Our theme is by me, Brian J. Howard of Del Toro Sound. Contributing musical performances by Matt Pistol Sosal, Kevin Sweeney, Jay Gonzalez, Nick Rosen, and R. Sloan Simpson. Admissible Season 1, Shreds of Evidence, is produced by Story Mechanics and VPM, Virginia's home for public media. We are distributed by iHeartMedia. VPM.